0: Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1 with It's For Women. The car insurance with extra benefits like personal accident cover. There and you're very welcome to the program. Well, coming up in the next hour, admired by everyone from Dire Straits to Bob Dylan as he celebrates his 75th birthday, I'll be joined today by one of our greatest singer songwriters, Paul Brady, as he releases his new album, Maybe So. Also, this morning, as thousands across the country join in next Saturday's Darkness into Light in solidarity with people impacted by suicide. I'll be speaking with founder Joan Freeman as she publishes her account of the event that's now become an international movement. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on anything featured on the show. You can text us to 51551, you can email miriam at rt.ie or you can tweet at Miriam O'Call. Well, it's been said of my first guest this morning that while we have several national treasures in this country, Paul Brady stands out like a shimmering star among their ranks. Regarded as one of our greatest singer-songwriters, having created more than his fair share of iconic songs... From The Island to Nobody Knows to The Long Goodbye, famous fans include everyone from Bob Dylan to Tina Turner and Cher to Joe Cocker and Ed Sheeran. In a glittering career that spans more than 50 years, this month sees Paul celebrate his 75th birthday and the release of his own new album, Maybe So. Paul Brady, good morning to you. Good morning, Miriam. So do you feel a bit like a national treasure after all that? (laughs) No, I don't.
1: (laughs) Not in the least, you know. But it's very nice to hear it.
0: Okay, so we're going to chat in a moment, but first let's hear from your new album. This is The Tower of Gone. That's The Tower of Gone, one of Paul Brady's songs from his new album. Did you find it difficult during COVID writing this album? Only from the practical
1: point of view, in, in the sense that nobody was allowed to move more than two Ks from their house at the beginning, so I couldn't bring musicians to the studio. But I, I've a lot of history of building up stuff myself in studio and, you know, building up the structures, which then I, I, I can replace later on with with real musicians. And also these days now, most musicians have their own digital setup in their own places. And, you know, it's so much simpler. You just send out a piece of uh, digital information. They play their bit and send it back to you. So bit by bit, we all got it together.
0: And actually, a number of the songs have lovely people and moments attached to them. Tell me about even Shea Healy. You have a song you wrote with Shea, haven't you? Yeah, well, some
1: years ago, Shay and I wrote this song, and it's a different song in in that the singer in the song has already left the planet. That's (laughs) the point. And he's concerned about all his loved ones, or he or she's concerned about all... Their loved ones left behind, and we sort of said to each other when we finished it, we uh, when we finished laughing, we said, Look, whoever leaves the planet first, <laughs> the other has to sing it at his funeral. And I did in April 21, uh, sing the song at Dear Shay's funeral, and uh, that was a sad but uplifting affair. Yeah.
0: Listen, 75 this month, how do you feel about reaching that milestone in your life? You look about 20 years younger, by the way. <laughs> It's not so much that I'm seventy-five,
1: but it's that in five years I'm going to be eighty. <laughs> no, I mean I've I'm doing a slew of gigs at the moment that are that are finally on after being rescheduled four or five times over the last two years, and I'm finding I have as much energy as I used to have, and people seem to be enjoying them, and uh, we're still here.
0: <laughs> as someone who's been writing songs probably even longer than forty years. Does it get easier, or do you approach it differently?
1: Well, it's never easy looking at a blank page. Music has always come simpler to me. I'm I'm forever living in a world of music in my head. Uh, lyrics come more difficult, more difficult. Like I mean, when I've got to this stage, I've kind of gone. Well, I've written, but but most of anything I've been concerned about or, or enamoured of in my life. So what else is there to write about? But then, since the 90s, I've been collaborating with other writers and that has opened doors for me musically too because when I read somebody else's lyric, it, th- it throws me in a certain direction musically that I mightn't have gone with, without that.
0: Listen, I know a good bit about your background, Paul, but can we go back? Remind me, you were born in Straban and in fact... Your home almost straddle the border. You went to school in Siam Mills. Tell me about your upbringing. Tell me about your parents first.
1: My father, Sean Brady, was from Sligo uh, and my mother, Molly Michael Holm, came from Tyrone, the border of Tyrone and Fermanagh. And they met in in Bundorn, uh, which is where most of that part of the world used to go for their holidays. Got married in the early 40s, moved to Straban then because they both were teachers, except that Molly was trained in the north, in the Northern Ireland system and Sean was trained in the South. So they both wanted to work after they were married, so a border town was the only thing that made sense. And that's really the only connection we have with Straban. We were sort of blow-ins there and, and didn't have much of a history there. Molly taught in, in Sion Mills School which was three miles southwards on the way to Omah, and Sean went over the bridge to Lifford
0: And did you have good relationships with both of them or not? <clears throat> I
1: suppose my mother and I had a sort of a fractious relationship I suppose but it was much easier with my father I think my father being artistic and he sort of understood me a bit better and uh you know we had a, we, we never fell out or anything you know but but i suppose in a, in every kind of family the children have a relationship with the father and with the mother and it it varies from family to family my relationship with molly was was always a little fractious Sometimes you know.
0: she was probably, when you think back now, just worried about you, worried about maybe going down the music path. Would it be steady? Yeah.
1: I, mean, I mean, there was no history of a good career out of music in Ireland at the time. I mean, it was fraught with danger. And the whole phrase that was used regularly all the time was you have to have something to fall back on. Mm-hmm. And the notion when you're 15 of falling back on anything is (laughs) sort of foreign. I didn't want to feel that my life was going to be something that I'd be falling back from, you know. But I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I found myself in UCD in 1964 and I didn't want to be there. I was only there because uh, like all people who got, all students who got the A-levels in the north of Ireland, we got a university scholarship. Mm. Uh, And so that saw me in Dublin. But it wasn't very long before I got into bands, joining bands and and playing music all the time. Yeah,
0: because you kind of didn't really do your final exams. Is that right or wrong? I did them. I <coughs> I went in and sat for the regulation. Sixty minutes. Okay, and after
1: sixty minutes, I handed my paper in, and there was nine exams. I remember there was nine. What were you studying? I was studying arts, uh, Irish and French. But I, you know, I I handed up my papers after the hour, and I remember like all the rest of the students would always be looking at their watches at fifty-nine minutes. When's Brady going to get up? (laughs) So I gave my papers away, and in the room that. 40, 50 years later, I, I got a Lifetime Achievement Award presented by Michael D. Higgins. So well, how ironic is that?
0: Was it sweet, though? It, it was, yeah. yeah. yeah it, it was, but again, surreal. When you were in Straban, obviously, you're north of the border, but it was a mixed primary school, I think, wasn't it, in Similes? And not just mixed boys and girls, but mixed religion. Yeah. Were you conscious of that? Like growing up there at that time, were you conscious that it's unusual the school was mixed or was it after that things got after It was
1: after that that I realised that it was a hugely privileged experience to be in a primary school uh, with boys and girls and mixed religion. Because every other school around me was either Catholic or Protestant or boys and girls. And I, I think I grew up in a, in an atmosphere of tolerance in the school and it seemed normal to me. And then when I went to St. Collins boarding school when I was 11 for six years, a Catholic boys school, it was a terrible shock to me mm-hmm. because everything was, uh, it was very rigid, you know, and uh, it was a bad experience for me.
0: Was it? Because that's got a great reputation. That school, doesn't it? It Has a lot of famous alumni. Yeah,
1: well, it's it's a great school academically and sports wise and all that. But there wasn't a huge amount of interest in the arts when I was there. At any rate, I mean, I mean, for instance, I wasn't even allowed to bring my guitar. My father got me a guitar for my eleventh birthday. And I was at college at the time. I was, you know, I was home on my holiday's Christmas, but I wasn't allowed to bring my guitar back to the school. So for six years, I only knew three chords. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Is that the time your dad asked you if you'd prefer a guitar or a harmonica? Yeah. <laughs> And did that choice ultimately seal your faith? <laughs> well, it did. It, it, of
1: course it did. That was, we're talking now just after rock and roll, Elvis, Little Richard, uh, Chuck Berry, all, all those great artists, Fats Domino were coming along and there was a lot of guitar being played, Eddie Cochran. And uh, uh, I was very glad I had a guitar.
0: <laughs> the fact that he offered you the harmonica or guitar, do you think your dad spotted in you that spark of the performance?
1: Well, I wouldn't. I mean, I've been playing piano since I was about six, you know, uh, and I uh, I had taught myself uh, how to play. I mean, I had a very good musical ear, although I was absolutely terrible at reading music. I hated reading music. And to this day, to this day, I find that I can't sight read easily, you know. But I had a very good ear and so I, I picked up a lot of tunes from the radio, hit tunes, and I was able to play them on the piano myself. So he knew I was musical.
0: You mentioned St. Colm's there. Were you there when John Hume taught there?
1: John Hume was my French teacher. Wow. Yes. yes uh, was he a good
0: French teacher?
1: He was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he spoke French with a dairy accent. But <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, it's, it was a very good school, but there wasn't a lot of music. It was very little Irish music at the time in the school, to be honest. Very hard to hear Irish sh- songs.
0: So when you left your UCD exam after 60 minutes, when, did you head for London quite soon after that?
1: The reason I left the college was because I'd been asked to join the Johnstons. Yeah. And they were a nationly, nationally famous band at the time. They just had a number one hit with a Ewan McCall song, The Travelling People. So I was plucked from obscurity to be in it, this headlining band. How did that come about? It came about because I was in a, f- a flat in Ranla a- above Mick Maloney. Yeah. Uh, and I would. Uh, go down the stairs and I'd hear these musicians in the room uh, playing ballads and playing traditional music on, on, on the tenor banjo and stuff like that and I wasn't really a huge folk fan at the time but we we, we started to play poker together and, and it was in, in that atmosphere that I realised that Maloney had just joined this group called the Johnstons and I then started opening for them in the Embankment Tala and the Old Shielding and Rohini And I got noticed then performing. And when the Johnsons wanted a a change of personnel, I was asked to join. We played all around Ireland and made several visits to the UK in that, but didn't move to the UK until January 69.
0: And what happened when you got there then? And what was it like then going as an Irish musician?
1: I mean, the political thing really didn't seem to cut across the artistic thing very much. Although it was very strange to, to have had a song on, on one of our albums called The Fenians of Scatterseveen, which would have been one of our closing songs in the folk clubs in the UK, just about a year before things got really bad over there in terms of yeah. uh, the bombing and all that, you know.
0: And um, how did planksty come about? And when you joined Plankste, of course, you were joining pretty much superstars of Irish folk music, yeah. like... Donal Lunny, Christy Moore, Andy Irvine, Liam O'Flynn. yeah. Were you conscious how big they were, and how did it come about you joined them?
1: Well, the Johnston's had a good life of about six years, but for the last two or three years, we we had moved to America, and things kind of fell apart there because various reasons. There was a huge dearth of vinyl at the time interestingly enough it's so it's so popular again but there was a fuel crisis in the world and record companies uh were finding it hard to get vinyl and of course that was the only methodology of making records at mm. the time and so they weren't signing new acts so we we arrived in america even though we'd had a, a minor hit with Joni mitchell's uh, both sides now we still couldn't get a deal that, that really worked for us in America. So I was stuck over there from about 1971 to 1973. And I got a letter from Liam O'Flynn one morning saying that Christy Moore was going to leave Planksley and would I come and join them. So yet again, I was plucked from the depths of despair into a a, a famous group. You know, I mean, how lucky is that?
0: And were those years fantastic in Planksty?
1: Well, we only had a year and a half after that and I had mixed feelings about it. It was, it was exciting musically for me, but, but we, we, we lacked the direction. We lacked uh, focused management. None of us were great with business. And bit by bit, things just started to unravel. Uh, we, we decided that we would stop. But then after we broke up, this would have been 1975, late 75, Andy and I, Andy Irvine and I decided we would stay together because we enjoyed working together. We were a smaller unit. We, we were more focused. We started touring a lot and then finally made our album in 1977 It came out.
0: And of course, you created that album in just 10 days one of the most influential folk trad albums of all time, at Rockfield Studios, wasn't it, in Wales, where Queen had recorded Bohemian Rhapsody? Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about recording the album there and the success of that album.
1: It was in the summer of 76, which meteorologists will remember as one of the the hottest ones on record. So we were stuck in a studio for 10 days while the world was boiling outside, which was a shame in a way because we missed a lot of the good weather. (laughs) But... It was an exciting time. We were making it up as we went along. Uh, Donal was there as producer and and sometime musician. Kevin Burke uh, was the fiddle player. The songs we sang were the songs that Andy and I had worked together in the two years pr- post Plankste. Uh We we were touring, and all those songs were, were the ones that we recorded on that album. And it came out, and um, it was well received. But it, over the last forty years, it's it's become kind of iconic in a way. And we, mm. never, we never imagined anything like that because, we, as I said, we were making it up as we, as we went <laughs> along. We didn't know quite what we were doing.
0: And um, for many people on that great album, one of the highlights, if not the highlight, is your reimagining of the 19th century anti-war protest by Darth McBride. Tell me the story behind that song and why you both wanted to do it.
1: Andy had recorded it on his previous album in a different version on, on, on the previous Plank's Day album before I joined. Although I was in America at the time and I wasn't aware of that when I found the song Arthur McBride. But I found this particular version in a book in a house of a friend of mine called A Heritage of Songs and it was a collection of songs by a woman called Carrie Grover and I loved the melody and I loved the the words, substituted a few things here and there that I felt might make it more understandable and uh, it was the first thing I really worked at as a solo artist. Yeah.
0: Do you still get asked to sing it a lot and do you (coughs) mind singing it 40 years on?
1: Not at all. I mean, I'm I'm singing it at the moment again. Each I I I'll let it go for six months and then I'll bring it back. And when it comes back to me, it's like an old friend because it's it's a dramatic song. It's a dramatic story. The characters are are, are dramatic. I can a- almost deliver it as a actor as well as a singer. And I that's again my father coming through in different humors. I will sing it in a different way. You know,
0: and audiences always react hugely to it, don't they?
1: they the minute I, they hear the guitar intro, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they know go what's wild. coming. Yeah, it's great. And they always sing along too, which is lovely. Oh, me and my cousin wanna...
0: Legs upon your train, which after you record anything spawned lots of other covers, but what drew you to that song? Where did you find that song? It was actually on a planksty album
1: sung by Christy Moore. And when I came into Plankstey, I felt I should at least includes some of the songs that had been popular with the band before I joined. So I learned it from the Christy Moore version. Then, I de- of course, I developed it in my own way. And when I recorded it on my own album two years after the Andy and Paul album, it had found the shape that, that it is now. And uh, it's very different to the way Christy sang it. But I loved the way Christy sang it too. Both versions are beautiful. What is the story of it? Well, I, I think it's something to do with the Spanish-American War in the mid-1800s. You know, he's talking about foreign money. So your man finds himself with a bunch of money that's no use to him, and he finds himself stuck by Lake Pontchartrain, and he falls in love with this Creole girl. But she's betrothed to someone else, and <laughs> so it's a sad song in the end. <laughs> it was on one bright March morning I bid New Orleans adieu and I took the road to Jackson town my fortune to renew I coursed all foreign money no credit could I gain which filled hard with long and far
0: the legs of I should lay It's so peaceful. I gather Bob Dylan I know he has spoken of how enraptured he was by your recording of it. So much so, I read that he asked you once to show him the distinctive guitar technique you <laughs> use. Is that right? Yeah, yeah.
1: He was playing in Wembley Stadium in the mid '80s. I Think '85 it was, I think. And I got the phone call from the agency, and Bob wants to meet you. So I flew over and was shown into backstage to where Bob it was there and. He wanted to know how I played it. So I said, well, for a start, you have to tune the guitar differently to, to the orthodox tuning. So we said, oh, yeah. And I, and I says, you know, can I have your guitar? So he gave me his guitar and I tuned it to the an open D, which is the way I, I play the song. And you know, I I talked him through it, and he picked it up and tried to play it. And if he put his finger on the wrong fret, I found myself taking his fingers and not, no, not, not there, over here. <laughs> and that was kind of uh, a really bizarre thing. That morning, I didn't think I'd be I'd be moving Bob Dylan's fingers around the guitar neck.
0: <laughs> I'm going to take a break, Paul. So stay with us. Uh, we'll be back in a few moments. Tweet at Miriam O'Call. Welcome back. I'm here this morning chatting with one of our greatest singer-songwriters who's this month marks his 75th birthday and he's just released his new album, Maybe So Paul Brady. We're going to talk about the album more in a moment. Although your collaboration with Andy was hugely successful, you never wanted to be musically pigeonholed. Sure you didn't. So how soon after that did you venture into kind of, I don't know, people call it rock pop territory? (laughs) with your brilliant album Hard Station, a move you later described once as temporary professional suicide.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, things were quite rigid at the time in in, in the artistic community. You were either a folk singer or or a pop singer or a rock singer, or you know. And so I I started writing my own songs in the late 70s. After I put my own album out in 78, the album was called Welcome Here, Kind Stranger. I I kind of... it was my kind of farewell to folk music in a way because not that I never wanted to go back to it and but there were so many other things I wanted to find and I started to write songs and uh, in 1980 I started recording and recorded one of the songs that eventually went on to Hard Station called Crazy Dreams the album came out then in 1981 and uh, from then on I was sort of a songwriter and touring with bands yeah
0: Stunning album, stunning song. And although it's now hugely revered, at the time, was it a little like Bob Dylan going electric? People, did they appreciate you kind of deserting folk as they saw it? Or was it you just didn't want to be pigeonholed? Well, my
1: audience, I had been introducing my songs in an acoustic form uh, for about a year or two before I made Hard Station. So my fans didn't mind but the media just sort of, I suppose, it was picked it up as an obvious kind of uh, angle to take, oh, he's he's doing a Bob Dylan at Newport sort of thing, you know. Certainly, financially, I would have been better off staying on the folk scene because I kind of jumped off the top of one pile onto the bottom of another, you know.
0: But that album, those songs have now been so successful. So I seem, in retrospect, it was the right although courageous thing to do at the time.
1: Well yeah I mean it it wasn't even a case of courage I mean I just had no choice you know I mean to me I had to go where my instinct took me where my muse took me. Uh, I was never going to settle down into an easy career repeating myself for years and years Uh, I, I just there was too much going on inside me that I wanted to know what is this to stop me.
0: Is that easy to be like that?
1: It's not easy to be like that, and it's probably not easy for, for, to be around people like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was forever walking away from situations t- to emptiness and trying to find another way. And in the eighties the and nineties, uh, I was forever not in one place. You know, I, I was, <sighs> I was trying to see how far I could push the envelope uh, artistically, as much as anything else, and. Uh, It was also hard to find my way through the commercial music scene at the time uh, because the singer-songwriter scene of of the 60s and 70s had kind of come to an end and it was all... Sort of as I used to call them, haircut bands in the 80s, like you know. And I was up against bands like Catch a Goo and Bananarama, bands like that, which which were all the rage in the UK. Because at the time, my record company was trying to break me through in the UK, and it was the wrong time for a singer-songwriter. So that was difficult at the time. But I don't regret any of the moves I've made. You know, where I am now is where I've always meant to be. I'm very happy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because it turned out great in the end. But during those tricky times, maybe in the 70s and 80s, is that difficult to keep believing in yourself when maybe at that time the commercial success you wanted seemed to be eluding you and going to different types of bands?
1: I was fortunate in that people much more famous than me started to record songs of mine. So I began to make a living as a songwriter, even though I was finding it difficult as a performer. Uh, so that was very that was a good bonus. I found that I didn't expect. I'm the sort of person who, when I make something that I I think is good, I, I sort of feel, ah, nobody's going to notice this, you know. So I wasn't expecting ever to be a big rock star. Um, although, uh, in a way, I felt compelled to try and follow that road because of you know my management's wishes and the record company's wishes and. I never felt comfortable trying to be in a rock star. Never felt comfortable.
0: And in a way, you didn't really need that. Well,
1: as it turns out, I didn't. Mm. But at the time, I, I didn't know that. And all around me, the, the, the world I was living in at the time, managerially, record company-wise, life performance-wise, was that rock-pop world. And it was like, you've, you've got to break America, you know, so we've got to go to America and all this kind of stuff. And... Uh, It wore me out to be honest and uh, when it started to drift away I I ended my relationship with major uh, record labels in the mid 90s and I was so relieved to to be out of that bear pit. (laughs) Obviously I had a, a blank canvas again and I didn't know where it was going to go. But I had been fortunate in that, you know, I didn't actually need to be a successful rock star because I was a successful uh, songwriter. Songwriter. Yeah.
0: And those great songs kept being recorded by lots of big artists. Yeah. Mm, Which is great. There's a funny one as well, because you worked with so many greats over the years. In his new book, My Life in Dire Straits, the bass player. John Ilsley tells a story about you supporting them in a stadium in Italy and you took on a bottle-throwing crowd. He described you and what you did is a truly heroic performance. Do you remember that concert? Well,
1: I mean, I do remember. Uh, I opened uh, for Dire Straits when Dire Straits were the biggest band in the world and they were playing in stadiums to 50,000 people. And I was the opening act, a solo performer, so when you walk on a stage, a massive stage, you know, in front of forty, fifty thousand people, it's a challenge, <laughs> particularly in Italy, because uh, as I as I joke sometimes, Italian audiences come there just to look at each other, you know. <laughs> so the 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 concert is just an occasion for Italians to admire each other. So I found myself I had to really work hard to get noticed. So the first thing I would do. Would when I would walk on stage was was roar at the top of my voice. Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> so loud. so then I looked at the audience and the audience were going, hey, hey, <laughs> hey, yeah, hey, hey, yeah, it's cool, it's cool. So I got them for the first song and then it was up to me to keep them. Yeah. So I'd be on stage for half an hour, maybe. You know, I I still get emails from people, messages saying. Uh, you know, the first time I saw you was with Dire Straits <laughs> in Italy, like you know, and we've followed you ever since. And so, I mean, I mean so it's it worked some kind of an impact anyway, you know. Yeah. But it was, it was. I wouldn't dream of doing it now, but I mean, I I must have had some cojones to, at the time to do it.
0: Jeffo, and as he said <laughs> in his new book, it's heroic. He yeah. still remembers and wrote about it. Yeah. And um, I have to ask you about the song "The Island." I think, like a lot of people, it's my <laughs> favorite song of yours. I know. Every time I meet you, I say, I love the island. It is a magnificent song, though, because it's so beautifully written. When did you write that? Well,
1: I had the music for a decade before the song was ever released. And I knew it was going to be about my feelings about life in in the North. But, you know, like a lot of people there, from my background, I had to deal with a sort of a cultural ambivalence about how things should be treated. You know there was a lot of discrimination in the fifties and sixties, and uh, my family uh, suffered from it as as a lot of people from the nationalist community. So there was an ambivalence there within me as to what was the right way around this, and it, it started to come at me lyrically. And I started to I wanted to write a song that expressed the doubts and fears and aspirations of an ordinary person who wasn't involved politically just a normal ordinary person and what came out was the lyrics to the island but i mean even i hadn't even finished i was in the record i was in the studio with a, with a metaphorical gun to my head because we had overrun the, the studio timing and we had to get the album finished and i was standing in front of the microphone and i still hadn't completed the words it was only as i was singing the song the words that I uh, had already written and was happy with that I heard myself singing a whole bunch of words that I had never had never come to me before so it was almost like I was writing the song as I was singing it They say the skies of Lebanon are burning Those mighty cedars bleeding in the heat They're showing And when it was over, I kind of was, I was quite exhausted, I suppose. And I went back in and listened to it and heard me singing a a lyric that I said, I don't know where that came from. I just, I don't know where it came from. And I'm a bit like that with songwriting. I think sometimes songs can write themselves if you just get out of the way (laughs) and let them come through.
0: But I mean, it is magnificent. And I know at the time, it was a tricky time for you when you wrote it. I mean, decades on, the lyrics of that song, which is really you're talking about the futility well, yeah. of violence. Decades on, we ended up in an agreement. Yeah. That, that, that could have been there decades before. That's yeah, not see, to take I, away I, from the discrimination. I wasn't, say,
1: I wasn't saying anything then that... that everybody didn't agree with 20 years later. But yeah. but it was a difficult time. It, w- it was not long after the hunger strikes and, and people were very emotionally charged at the time. And um, to many people, it it was the wrong signal. They didn't want to hear, you know.
0: This album, The Pandemic, it wasn't easy for anybody, I know. But it was especially hard as well because I think your son Colm and his family were in New Zealand, weren't they, for like maybe three years.
1: We used to go out for every January because they're there there now over he's there over a decade now so we would go out there in January get out of the winter in Ireland but the last time we were able to be there was I remember we came back through Hong Kong actually on the 17th of January 2020 and no one was actually talking about Covid at the time and about a week later after we got home the news started to come out of China of course New Zealand closed down and it's only now opening up although I'm fortunate that my son Colin and his entire family are coming over here in July so we'll have them here in July and then we'll go back in next January again.
0: There'll be some celebration
1: Oh it's a long way away you know you mean it's Mm. it's 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 it's, 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 it's sad not to be around as your grandchildren grow up but
0: Mm. that's the way it is. You'll see them in July anyway. Oh yeah yeah. You've been with your wife Mary since 1973? Married yeah. since
1: 1975? That's true,
0: yeah. And she's obviously a great influence as well, because in one of the songs on your new album Maybe So, which is It's a Beautiful World. Yeah. She came up with a nice idea, didn't she?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, before the song was finished, it started out as as a adult love song in a time of chaos. And as we drew to the end of it, some friends of ours had their first grandchild, and like they were so they had been waiting for a long time and and their joy was just a wonderful thing to see and mary said to me she says well you know th- this could be about a f- parents love of their child or a grandparents love of their of their grandchild and that was the idea that finished the song and It's now been called the baby song.
0: (laughs) (laughs) With the lovely baby laughing at the end, of course. Yeah, Yeah, it's beautiful. I think you've been working with Theo Katzman as well.
1: Yeah, well, Theo Katzman and I did some shows in 2019 over here with some other great musicians. So we played some gigs here and just before he went back to America, uh, you know, we said, let's try and write something, you know. How Come I Feel Bad is the first track on the record, which I I describe as a a fun song about depression. (laughs) Because in the middle of COVID, you know, like a lot of people, I'm going, is this ever going to end? Am I ever going to get back on the stage again? It's a fun song, but it's it's still about how come I feel bad.
0: (laughs) And did you feel bad?
1: I did feel bad, yeah. You know, I mean, like, you have to question who you are, what you are even. And having spent my life singing to people and having to go through two years of of, of not doing it, it, it makes you ask a few questions of yourself and, uh, and you know, what what are you, you know?
0: When you look back in your life now, do you feel blessed in the life you've had?
1: Oh, I do feel blessed. Mm. I feel blessed that I was given a talent. I don't know where what it is. I mean, I still don't really understand the shape of it and that's one of the things that I, I feel lucky about. Uh, I feel very fortunate that, like I said earlier on, in at various times when I felt I was at my lowest, I was plucked out of the depths and shoved onto uh, an international stage. I, I, I felt great that songs that I wrote started to be loved by other artists and that was very good for me, just from a point of view making a living. Yes, I'm a lucky man. Very lucky.
0: And are you, do you think you're a happier, or to use a horrible word, more mellow person, whatever that is, in your life now?
1: Yeah, I am. I'm a lot more mellow. I mean, I was driven back in the 80s. I was a a driven individual, as much driven by people outside me as I was from, from within. And I was frustrated. At not been able to be comfortable in the areas I found myself being sold in. And, you know, that wasn't easy to live with, you know, and I was away a lot. And uh, God bless my dear, suffer- long-suffering <laughs> wife. She had to put up with a lot. So that's sort of thing all gone. I don't, st- strangely enough, I don't even consider I'm in the music business anymore. I feel that I'm very happy with where I am and what I am. And I don't feel a need to compete with anybody anymore.
0: And you've finally written your memoir, I gather, (laughs) or writing it.
1: It's coming out in October uh, on the Marion Press here in Ireland and it's called Crazy Dreams. Um, I've been writing it over the last few years and we're in the final stages of editing and uh, it's been sort of hanging around me for a while so I'll be glad to get that out.
0: Are you enjoying being back on the road and where are you going? Where can everyone find out where they can go and see you?
1: Well, I I've been working every every single weekend in March and April and up to the end of May. I'll be quite busy. I'm doing a festival actually in in Marley Park. Uh, on the 21st of May, the NASC, N-A-S-C Festival. It's an open air festival. And uh, I'm looking forward to that very much because I'll have musicians with me on stage because at the moment I'm touring solo. Mm. uh, So I'll I'll have a band with me on that show. And um, it's great to be back playing. You love it. I love it.
0: Well, your new album, Maybe So I Love It, Anyone who wants to buy a poll, they can get it now. I think on your own website and yeah, all they other can, outlets. Yeah,
1: you can get it. You can get a hard copy CD, and it's on digital download. And you know, you can get all that on my website, paulbrady.com.
0: Well, it's a beautiful job, and Paul is ever. Thanks for being my guest today.
1: Thank you.